Our Bible passage this morning is 2 Timothy chapter 3. You can find this in the Church Bibles on page 1196. Page 1196. And it's the Apostle Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 3. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janice and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected but they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra? the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learnt it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I was so thrilled to be asked to preach at Bab Bar, and then I got the title, Beware of Terrible Times, <laughs> and the passage, the first nine verses of this chapter. Now, I'm happy to say we're taking a twin approach. The second part of this chapter we're to cover in a fortnight's time. If we take a very quick overview, divide it into three parts. The first five verses of this chapter, incidentally page 1196, 
The first part deals with the lifestyle of human society without God. And then the second few verses, the methods of other soul winners without gospel truth. And then finally, the contrast in verses 10 to 17, true ministry and the ground of Christian certainty. We're going to learn some lasting lessons, I hope. The deep happiness and need of human beings. The true shepherd care looks after the vulnerable and holds the faith. And we should learn to develop true spiritual effectiveness. Well, let's be enriched by what God's word has to say. So first, a prayer. Oh God, our Father, you gave us the scriptures to be a guide to us and to point us to Jesus, to draw us into your presence. By the help of your Holy Spirit, help us understand what this passage has to say to us what God himself has to say to us. So draw us into your presence and thrill our hearts, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, well, it was somewhere between 50 and 100 years, I was uh, uh, doing my naval reserve training on the bridge of a coastal minesweeper. And the navigator had plotted a course that went fairly close inshore. And from the darkness, we got a peremptory signal from a nearby lighthouse. Two short flashes and a long one. Two short flashes and a long one. The Morse letter U, and it means you are heading into danger. Now, Paul gives Timothy here stark warning. Mark this. There are going to be terrible and dangerous times ahead for the church. There are reefs and shallows ahead. Some are obvious, others more subtle. They may come and go, but Christian leadership must be forewarned and prepared. And the warning he gave applied then, it applies now and in the future. But this is about the last days, isn't it? First sentence, there will be terrible times in the last days. The last days are defined for us in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, when Peter at Pentecost preaches and he quotes from the Old Testament, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. The last days are the post-resurrection age when the spirit came, when the church was commissioned to global mission with the gospel. And these verses, 2 to 5, describe humanity and its wrong orientation in this era when Satan's global empire is being undermined and fighting back. Now, all Jesus' followers are his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And this passage helps to describe the cultural terrain that they must cross to reach needy souls for Jesus. And these verses show the misery and wretchedness of godless people. These are our neighbors who need 
the message of light and hope that we have. This is where we all are until Christ redeems us. It's not a nice picture. And when we think of human beings and their desperate moral need before God, we marvel at the love of the Creator God who is patient enough to send us His Son to be our Savior and deliver us from all this mess. And the prevailing culture of today and every age will always be at odds with God and always a danger to the church of Christ. Will things get even worse? And no doubt, as Satan sees the gospel advancing and knows his time is short, he'll redouble his efforts. Perhaps those terrible times will get more frequent and intense, a bit like weather patterns in climate change. But our God is the eternal, the ancient of days, all-powerful, ever-gracious. Praise his name. And so we come to describe the character of those times. The culture of the age is defined by where its heart is, what it loves above all. Look at the bookends of verses 2 and 4. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Human beings were made to love God, verse 4, and goodness, verse 3. But we chose to follow our own inclinations, listening to the voice of the serpent rather than the word of the loving Father. And these verses tell us what happens when people reject God's loving rule. They become lovers of themselves, self-absorbed. All they can hope for is self-help. If there's no God to listen to the voice of the despairing, they've got to find inner strength and personal power. They become lovers of money, things, luxury, greed, if you've got enough, and covetous resentment if you haven't. Lovers of pleasure, we go in for self-indulgence, easy life, entertainment. What we should love, God and the goodness he brings, his care, his compassion, lasting committed love, justice, fairness, beauty. And what happens when we won't have God's rule? Humanity makes a pretty poor hand at self-government. Look at history. Look at the world around. Mankind playing at God is robbed of its own humanity. These verses describe the exact characteristic that's opposed to God. Not loving and caring and just and forgiving like God, but all too often unloving, uncaring, unforgiving, uncontrolled. Now, of course, people can also be kind and creative and loving because we're made in the image of God. 
But we all know this downward drag because humanity is grievously marred. It's a sad picture, and it should move us to pity and care and prayer because only God can sort out this mess. And then Paul suddenly surprises us with a sharp warning. <clears throat> Verse 5b. He says, have nothing to do with such people. Where's the surprise? Well, first, how can Timothy or we avoid folk who don't know God? And second, how are we going to reach them with the gospel unless we're mixing with them? <clears throat> while I take some refreshment. Thank you. Let me mention, in my student days, we were much amused by an American book called The Gospel Blimp. It had to do with a, a Christian couple who moved into a new neighborhood, and they wanted to evangelize their neighbors. Unhappily, the neighbors weren't the kind who were going to come to church at all. They spent most of the day sunbathing, uh, weekends, of course, sunbathing in the back garden. So our good friends hired, great expense, a small airship to tow a message, God loves you, behind it, across the airspace in front of their eyes. It didn't work because they weren't looking. <laughs> but a fruitful friendship developed and the neighbor came round and wanted to borrow something, a hose pipe or something or other. Now, we must be mixing with the world that needs God. But Paul is writing to Timothy as a Christian leader and pastor. He must do the work of an evangelist. He must mix with and reach the majority population who don't know God. So what does Paul mean when he says, have nothing to do with such people? Who exactly is Timothy to avoid? The answer is in verse 5a. This is the religious wing of the godless culture. People having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Religion, even in false forms, can help society. It conveys a sense of well-being. It offers meaning and hope, life beyond, all that kind of thing. And everybody likes the message of God's love. But the God of the Bible is holy. His love is shown and his love is reached through the cross. A religion without Jesus Jesus without the cross, faith without repentance. These things are powerless. By contrast, what is the power of the gospel? God saved us and called us to a holy life. That's chapter 1, verse 9. Salvation from the power of sin and its penalty. Change of heart, change of life, transformation. This is the power of God, and it's achieved only by the Holy Spirit living within a human being. Power comes when we believe in Jesus coming from God, dying for our sin, to bring us God's acceptance 
access to God as Father. And with that come so many other gifts. The gift of prayer, gift of assurance, hope in the face of death. Our Savior Christ has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, verse 10 of chapter 1. That's true power in human life. And any kind of religion that diminishes the Lord Jesus and his deity, sidelines his sacrificial death for sinners, <coughs> lacks power to change. Now, <clears throat> Paul goes on. He wants to warn Timothy. <clears throat> he is saying, in effect, beware this spirit of the age can invade the church. Timothy must take care to protect the church from false teachers. The sort of people who peddle a, an entirely superficial religious experience that does not teach Jesus, our Savior, through the cross. Look at this. He, he actually picks up uh, an example of people in his own age, verses 6 to 10. We're going to come to them in just a moment. But let's ask ourselves whether the spirit of our own age affects us. What is our age obsessed with? Lovers of self? How about this? Popular culture is often at that point promoting number one, looking after ourselves. And maybe sometimes even our prayers, even our praises are a bit too full of us, of me, and not God and his son. God loves to hear us tell him how wonderful his son is. Let's fill our lives with this spirit of praise. Our age is obsessed with pleasure. Christians are, to be call, are called to be lovers of God. But are we too easily diverted into the sort of things that the world is obsessed with? Money? Entertainment? Where are our hearts? Do we discipline ourselves to pray and to seek God's face in Scripture where he has promised to meet us? No one slides into a life of prayer and holiness without love for Christ and self-discipline, the power that the Spirit brings. But let's look at the people of Paul's day. He mentions the sinister methods and selected targets of some people. We might describe their equivalent verses 6 to 8, as gurus and life coaches and influencers with their own agenda, offering a kind of spirituality, but not Christ. And they can make a target of the vulnerable, 
and let the church always care for the weak and the muddled, those with a little knowledge of the truth and little experience of life, the children, teens, many others. In our church community, we need constant vigilance and prayerfulness for those who are vulnerable in our midst. We can never take enough care of them. But Paul gives a first century example from Rome or Ephesus of women with time on their hands and guilt in their hearts and without enough critical capacity to reach informed judgment. This isn't Paul inveighing against women. This letter and many others are so full of Paul's appreciation. Even in this letter, we'll find <coughs> the wonderful godly women. Um, <coughs> the wonderful women in <coughs> Timothy's own life, where he expresses a huge regard for various people, even the scholarly Priscilla and her husband Aquila, who helped the wise Apollos. Lois, Eunice, Claudia. There's a woman, the very last name uh, person in this of uh, Paul's last letter. Now, this is a particular example. People who start with a deep sense of moral failure. They're weighed down with sins, but not ready, it seems, to give up their underlying evil desires. They're eager for new ideas but not able to find the spirit, not able to find the truth. Thank you, brother. They need God's Holy Spirit to give them truth and assurance. And you know, in the gospel, we have wonderful things. We have a Christian answer to guilt. It's the cross of our Savior who took all our blame, all the punishment we deserve, we can be cleansed, guilt taken away. Praise God for that. And he gives us his word. He gives us his spirit. Rock solid truth. How we need to take these things to heart. And finally, words of encouragement, verses 8 and 9. I'm going to call this God always wins. God's truth always outlasts error. And Paul gives here in verses 6 to 8 an example well known to any Jew. Janice and Jambres, <laughs> did you know their names? The names that are given in, in Jewish history to the magicians who stood against Moses and propped up Pharaoh's resistance to the word of God. Now just picture the scene. On the one hand, the mighty ruler of the greatest empire of the day, famed for its achievements and its power. And here, an 80-year-old shepherd uh, with his even older brother, holding in his hand the staff that God had given him, uh, with which he could make signs. And here's the sign thrown down, and Moses' staff became a snake. 
And Janus and Jambres step forwards and they say to Pharaoh, Your Majesty, you don't need to worry about that. That's a conjuring trick. Boyhood level. Let us show you. And then by their dark arts or skill or illusion or something, they produce a similar trick. And Pharaoh is hardened to resist the message of God coming from Moses. Let my people go. They may serve me. But you know, really, if we look into this story, there's no contest, is there? Actually, on this side may be the power of a mighty king and his treacherous magicians. Now, on this side, there's a humble man with his hand in the hand of Almighty God. And God wins. He wins every time. And this is something that we need to hold on to in terrible times. God will win. Our Savior is winning. Satan is losing the struggle. Take heart. Terrible times, but a mighty God. Stand back and see what he will do if only we, his people, will trust him with faith and humble prayer. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Quick prayer. Lord Jesus, what amazing words to strengthen us. You have come into our world as Savior. You have rescued us from sin. And one day you will return as King. Lord, we bow before you and give you worship. Amen.